0: Welcome back to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. And today we got a great show lined up for you with an amazing guest. She also has her own podcast. And today we're joined by Janice Torres Rodriguez. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So I'm so happy to have you on, and I can't wait to just get into the meat of what we're going to talk about. But I definitely want to start with a little background of yourself. So the listeners, Can get better acquainted with you. And we know you have a podcast, and we'll let you talk a little bit about that. But please share with the minority money community what you do, who you are.
1: Yeah. So, my name, like you said, is Janice Torres Rodriguez, and I am many things. First off, I identify as Latina. I'm Puerto Rican, born and raised in New Jersey, now in Florida. And I do a lot. I'm an engineer, I'm a podcaster, I'm a food blogger, I'm a Zumba instructor, I'm a freelance writer, and the list could go on and on. So, I'm definitely a type of person that I explore my curiosities to the umpteenth power, and that has definitely led me down many different paths, most recently as a podcaster. So I'm the creator and host of the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast, which is a podcast for Latinas about personal finance. So we're talking about all the things that we should have learned when we were growing up, but didn't because our parents didn't have the education to teach us about money. So I do solo episodes and guest episodes where I'm talking to people of color that really identify as millennials. You know, our audience is mainly like 25 to 45, and we're just all figuring out this whole money thing as we go along. So we're sharing stories, talking about debt payment, investing, building generational wealth, and finding community amongst each other to support each other in our goals.
0: I think it's so needed. There can't be enough of these. There can't be enough of, you know, I won't even say just minority specific podcasts that are going to deal with issues, especially when you're talking about stuff we didn't learn as kids. Like there's like the list of things we didn't learn about (laughs) money and the relationship with it and how important it's going to be in your life and how those, yeah, we can't have enough. So I'm glad you're doing that. How long have you had your podcast?
1: So the podcast started in um, May of 2019, but I feel like in earnest, my effort behind it began this year in January, and then COVID definitely accelerated it because what else was I going to do? I'm stuck in my house. I'm going to talk to the people. (laughs) And so it's been a great opportunity to connect with dozens of guests, and we've built an amazing community on social media too. And it's funny because I feel like the podcast definitely stemmed from my own lack of seeing people of color talking about money, right? Like when I started learning about this stuff, I was encountering people like Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman. And while their advice can be really useful for everybody in a general sense, I also wanted to see and hear people that look like me that have my experience talking about money, right? Because it's just, it's different when you're getting money advice from somebody who has your first gen or the first person that went to college in your family. Like when they have that background versus, hi, I'm a millionaire and I own an Island on the Bahamas. This is why you should invest and save money. Like that message doesn't get through to you Mm -hmm. in the same way when you have peers that really share that same backstory.
0: It's amazing that like, as I talk to, you know, other minorities and just about money. And when you think about the other big name people, you know, like the Dave Ramsey, like the Susie Orman, like name a big minority money talking head.
1: No idea. I'll wait. I'll wait.
0: I'll wait. <laughs> Just you know, I mean, because there isn't one, right? And so when you're talking about like we have an entire generation of people that are the first people of their family to graduate college. Yep. When I have went to one of the games with one of my friends, uh, he had tickets to Stanford, and we went to a football game, and we we're sitting down talking to another family, and this family had history like their grandfather went to stanford their father went to stanford they were going to stanford and their kids were going to go to stanford this is four generations of this we're talking about people that just graduated and maybe just graduated with aa i was one of the like okay so i have six aunts and i have my mom and she had five brothers and our, there's one other sister and three brothers none of them i think i don't even think all of them graduated high school okay mm-hmm. so i don't know my mom i think she got her ged like not, you know, she didn't graduate high school. She got it afterwards. And so when we're looking at money advice or education or just any of the things that like to have someone like Dave Ramsey say what he says, I mean, it's great, but it's like, okay, but you haven't dealt with everything else. And, you know, i take my wife for instance. I mean, her parents didn't even speak English and they still don't speak English. Like it just blows my mind that we don't have a financial talking head. That's a person of color. So we'll,
1: it's so true.
0: Maybe we'll get there. I mean, I'm hoping one of us can do it and we can break the crack the code, and then, you know, have a huge platform so we can talk to minorities about the money things. I'm excited about this conversation. So we're going to talk about educating the traditionally underserved. And so let's just jump right into investing for beginners. Cause I think that's something that, that I get a lot of questions, but not think it's something I get questions about I think there's a lot of misinformation out there, especially for minorities. And it really just, it hurts me to see some of the stuff that we do to ourselves as it comes to investing. So let's talk about that. Investing for beginners. What are your thoughts on it?
1: So it's funny because investing was definitely not something that I grew up talking about you know, when I started investing, I was 22. I had just started working, so of course I opened a 401k because that's just what you're supposed to do. I didn't know why you open it. I didn't know what you invest in. I didn't know how much you're supposed to put in. I'm just like, okay, I get a job, I do all these adult things, and and be on my way. But as far as investing, like I feel like as a culture, we have a lot of anxiety about it because it is equated to gambling, and I think a lot of that happens because we don't really understand what investing is, right? When you think of millionaires in our communities, they're usually like celebrities, people that have hit it big with, you know, some random stroke of luck or people that have won the lottery. So there is no normal idea of what a wealthy person that was built by just budgeting and saving and investing. Like, what does that look like? We don't know. I don't know anybody who's done that. No. So that's one thing I think that's there's just a total lack of representation amongst investors in our community. And I think you see that in so many different ways, like the fact that less than 5% of certified financial planners are people of color. So they're not there to help us build because we're not even there in those spaces.
0: Let me give you the I'm not just, I'm just interjecting right here, just so I can give you the number. It was like 3.5%. This is blacks and Latinos combined of the
1: 82,000
0: financial planners out there. 82,000. We have, Combined and they combine blacks and Latinos because I think we should be combined. But yeah, there's 3.5, which was like, I want to say like 2,800 or something like that.
1: Yeah. So there you go. I mean, there's nobody who's dabbling in these fields as a professional that looks like us. So how are we going to guide each other when we don't even have representation in that space? And then I think there's so much emphasis on homeownership as the only way to invest in our communities, too. And I definitely fell for that trap. My parents came here when they were in their 20s from Puerto Rico. And their idea of the American dream was to buy a home. Like that's the pinnacle of success. That's what you invest in. You put all your money behind that. That's it. I did that. And I was miserable and I was house poor and I was completely unprepared to own property. And I ended up in therapy because it was so stressful. Like it was horrible. I couldn't wait to get rid of this house. And through that process, I started learning more about finances and investing, and I realized this is not the only way to build wealth. And I think when we see what happened in the last recession, Black and brown communities were exponentially affected by this housing crash because we are putting so much emphasis on investing in our homes and not diversifying where we are investing. So I think that's something we need to continue to harp on. I'm a big believer in like, you don't need to own a home to build wealth. There are different ways to invest, whether you're doing it in stock market, whether you're doing it in small business, whether you are creating different, you know, income streams for yourself, investing in education. Like we don't need to do what our parents did because that might not be what we need to do for ourselves and for our goals.
0: And I think that the emphasis of homeownership And I can speak of this in specifically to the Black community. Why I think it was such a big deal is because of you've heard of redlining, yes, and you've seen what homeownership can do. Like the same family that I'm talking about that had four generations of going to Stanford, I I promise you, every one of those generations on their own home. And so I think we put emphasis on it. It may be the wrong emphasis, meaning that it's like the end all be all. But at the same time, that emphasis on the homeownership it changes things. Like when you own a home in a school district, it's different because those taxes that you pay for your school, for your home, take care of your school. And so what happens when minorities don't own a home, this is just me looking at the whole picture. When we don't own a home, we typically rent. And when we're renting, we're renting in a lower income area. And that means the schools are going to be different. So purchasing a home does open up other avenues. Now, I totally agree with you. that it's not the end all be all. But like when I go back and I think about Black families in particular that were redlined that couldn't live in a certain area of a town because they were Black and it was people of color. It was done to Black people specifically, but I think it was mostly people of color. Because if you look at most neighborhoods that are, you know, lower income, it's going to be full of Black and brown people, right?
1: Absolutely. And I grew up in New Jersey. New Jersey is one of the most segregated states, even though it's in the North. And I could see it. You could drive down the street, 10 minutes down the road, you've got million dollar homes. And then another 10 minutes down the road, you have people that like 80% of them are living below the poverty line. And it's very structurally done. It's not an accident how these towns are set up. So I definitely relate to that.
0: And so that's what I say with the thing, but I, I like the point that you were bringing up about the 401k. So you started investing in your 401k. That's going to be the place, whether it's 401k, 403b, 457, whatever alphabet soup of retirement plan that you have. But that's where you started, right? Yeah. And so- Talk a little bit about that like experience, and then one thing I want to just touch on, because you said this, you we look at this as gambling, <laughs> and we do. like the biggest thing, like because when you talk about people, like I, I'm talking to clients and and they're like, "Well, you know, I don't want to gamble with my money. Okay, that's not gambling. I said it's a calculated risk. It's a little different than gambling, and we're not going to Vegas and just doing stuff but this is what the minority's mentality is about money. And I'll say this and I'll let you talk about it. The only place, one of the only places where no one can tell what race you are is when you invest your money. Mm-hmm. No one's gonna tell, cause all they see is the green, right? They don't, right. like, if you went and bought Amazon, you know, years ago, if you went and bought Microsoft years ago, no one can tell that you're black or brown or green or yellow or anything like that. They just see the money, right? And this is why we missed out on that opportunity. They could redline you in the house. They can't redline your investments. They exactly. can't redline your stock portfolio. They can't redline that. But we are so terrified of it. And the funny thing is we're terrified of it, but most of us participate in it and don't even know we participate in it because we have our retirement accounts from work.
1: So, Absolutely. Anyhow. Yeah, that that's such a great point, and so I want to touch on several of those things. So when it came to the four hundred one k, like I said, I was doing the bare minimum. I didn't understand that you had to invest at least up to the match because you're getting free money from your company. I had no idea what these investment options meant. You know, you see things like balanced fund and Russell three thousand and S and P five hundred. I'm mm-hmm. like, what? Okay, I guess I'll just buy a little bit of everything because I have no idea. And I kind of continued along that path. I, I did. Things you're never supposed to do, like taking loans from your 401k because, oh, I got to pay for a wedding or, oh, you know, I'm going to pay for grad school with this or whatever. So just doing all the things you're not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Then I'm turning 30, and then I'm like, okay, I really don't see myself working for another 35 years. Like, this is not a vibe. So I get introduced to this concept of financial independence. And that Was literally a life changing experience. So, for anybody who hasn't heard of financial independence or early retirement, it's this concept where essentially you're saving upwards of 50% of your income or more, and you're investing it in different avenues, whether that's stocks or real estate or combination of the two. And hopefully, you're also like doing some side hustles to increase your income so you can keep investing. And then the thought is that you can invest to the point where you're making enough money from your investments that you can live off of them and Mm -hmm. you don't have to work anymore. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And when I first heard about it, I was just like, there's no way, this is ridiculous. This is just like rich white dudes talking about investing in the stock market. Yeah, they make $200,000 a year. They're software engineers, whatever. This is not real. Until I actually started seeing people that were Latinas Mm -hmm. talking about this Mm -hmm. and people like Jamila Sufran of Journey to Launch I was like, oh my God, so I can do this too. And so I sold my house. I moved from New Jersey to Florida so that I could have a lower cost of living. I started investing thousands of dollars a month versus the couple hundred dollars that I was doing at work. And I'm on track to retire in 10 years. It's been life-changing. And so I want us to normalize this. I want us to get out of this idea that we have to slave over nine to five forever. Because it's really not the only option.
0: I think like you say that, and there's going to be people automatically that are going to be like, yeah, but that's the, but I mean, she's doing thousands a month. I mean, she's different. She's not different than us. And and so I think that the reason why, because I want to touch on the fire community a little bit later, but I wanted to talk about this. And I think the fire community, I think it's a good transition because what we like, I think so much about minority communities and how we think you got to go get a good job. You need to go work that 9 to 5 and then they're going to dictate when you get off and what your vacation is going to be and your life is basically lived by through your employer. Like everything that your work does is how you live your life. And so what we're seeing now is I think that entrepreneurship for the minority is the most job security and Is the best way to invest in yourself and build wealth. I really truly believe that. I believe that with every fiber of my being. And so, you as being a serial entrepreneur, let's talk about that. Talk to us about like, what is entrepreneurship? How do you get started? And why is it such a wealth building tool?
1: Yeah. So, it's funny because people ask me, like, did you grow up with an entrepreneurial background? Like, did you go to business school? Did you have family that owned business? And I will say no to all of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. I never saw myself owning a business. I went to school for biotechnology. I worked as an engineer. I still do. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to do like what my parents told me. Get a good job. That makes money. Mm-hmm. Retired 65, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was a layoff that really changed things in my mind. So I think a lot of people that are dealing with that right now, especially because of COVID, mm-hmm. this might be the time that you're thinking like, what am I actually doing with my life? Because up until that point, I kind of had just been going through the motions, just doing what I got to do, you know, going for that promotion, getting on the job. And I was very, very unsatisfied with life in general. So when this layoff came, it was a moment for me to stop and think like, Am I going to just keep doing what I was doing or am I going to take this opportunity to try something different? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I've always been passionate about, but I never had a chance to explore because of my nine to five, it was just really grueling experience, you know, working and then trying to do stuff on the side. That's fun. I always wanted to do something with food. So I wasn't sure if that was like opening a restaurant or, you know, becoming a catering company or something like that. And the thing that kept sticking out in my mind is like, I want location independence. I want to be able to work for myself and work from home. So I created a food blog and I started sharing recipes. I'm Puerto Rican. So I started sharing my cultural recipes, things that I couldn't find recipes for online. Even though there's millions of Puerto Ricans in this country, not a lot of Puerto Rican food bloggers. And that has blossomed into a business that owns over $60,000 a year today. So once I started seeing that, if I just take what's in my brain and start putting it out in the world, and it can actually earn money. That has been an absolute game changer for me. So now with the podcast, I'm monetizing that too. I started doing speaking engagements now because of the podcast. I'm a freelance writer because I was already blogging. I love to write. So I'm like, why not make money doing that? And even Zumba, I'm a Zumba instructor because I love teaching Zumba, but it's also a great workout for me. So instead of me paying a gym to go and exercise, I'm getting the gym to pay me to go and exercise. So it was just a complete mind shift. I really started thinking about how I'm spending my time and how I can maximize what I'm getting back for that time.
0: So I hear this a lot in the common theme and common thread that I find with entrepreneurs is they found something that they were good at and they found a way to monetize it. And so it's you're not doing anything that you don't love and then the crazy thing is if you can get paid for doing something that you love, you never feel like you're working, right? Absolutely. And so now you've done that. And we say it all the time. And, and I see it with this is, you know, I like using Madi as an example. Madi, my wife, I just, so I don't call her babe on, you know, so I just call her Madi, but on the show, at least you should kill me if we do that. In real life. <laughs> but like we've talked about just in general, just expanding your mind. What do you like to do? you know, and just having that conversation, what do you like to do? And and having that conversation with yourself and then saying, okay, how can I turn this idea into something that could make me money? And, and when you start thinking like that, like people have, we've been trained by our parents to think that the only way to work like right now, so my mom passed away. So I don't get to have this conversation with her and my grandparents have both passed away. So, but I, it's just, for, and I'm saying this to like, for my in-laws, because when they ask, you know, they, especially during COVID, they're like, you going to work? I was like, nah, I work from home. You know, I just, you know, I do my podcast and this and And then they're like, really? Yeah. I was like, well, how's that? I was like, you know, I work from home. She's like, what do you do? I was like, I manage people's money and they pay you for that. I was like, yes, they pay. It's like, it's just like a foreign concept. And I talk to someone else that's a, say social media coach and they get paid for that. And then there's someone else I know that gets paid for, and there's all these different things that don't have a tangible product that we're selling, but people are buying them. And we don't understand that as minorities, like we don't get that. And I think like you have, you know, kind of got the cheat code here, like to get this <laughs> stuff to, I mean, to the tune of $60,000, like you're making more money on a side hustle right now than people are making from their nine to five. So talk to us about how you, you, you said how you built it. I, I'm just trying to like, for the person that's listening, that's going to launch a business after they hear you talk about this. Cause I hope that person is out there, but how would you, you know, how would you get started with that?
1: Yeah. Uh, one of the main things I tell people is like, if you wouldn't do it for free, yeah. don't try doing it for money because you're probably going to be doing it for free for considerable amount of time. Maybe, you know, I wasn't profitable with my food block for at least two and a half years. So it's not like it just, you know, turn on the switch and I'm rolling in dough. That's not how it works. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the the thing with a lot of people in our community. Like we're trying to look for the let's get rich quick scheme. Mm. Right? Like the lottery thing. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, you know, companies like Tesla and Amazon and Apple, they were not built overnight. There was a lot of struggle behind that. There was a lot of debt. There was a lot of doubt. There was a lot of questioning like what the hell am I actually doing? So you have to go through that experience. The thing that I tell people is like, when I, you know, talk about side hustles, a lot of the questions are like, well, I'm not good at anything. What can I monetize? And everybody has a skill that you can monetize. You're probably using it at your nine to five. And instead of using it there, you should be using it to make yourself money, right? So take for instance, somebody who works like as an executive assistant, you're really good at planning. You're really good at scheduling at following up with people, at booking travel, at, you know, sending emails, doing social media, maybe you could be a VA on the side. You could be a virtual assistant to somebody who's running a business and who needs that extra support. And you can charge by the hour. You know, you don't even need your own website. If you want to just start on a website like Fiverr or Upwork and start listing your services and get used to people paying you directly versus you having to go through the middleman of your employer. Because once you actually start realizing that you can actually make money with your talents and you don't need anybody to mitigate that process, that's life-changing. The confidence that you get from that, it's like, yo, I'm going to do this again and again and again.
0: Like you make it sound so easy though. (laughs) You make it sound so easy. This doesn't happen for everybody else. People aren't running businesses from home, making more money than they made when they were going to nine to five, using the skills that they got hired for at their job. Like that doesn't happen.
1: You know, I used to think that until I really started diving down this rabbit hole of entrepreneurship and meeting other women who are doing the exact same thing. And I realized this is not something that is for the privilege, for people who have trust funds, for the rich white kids that have nothing else to do. Like I build my businesses outside of my nine to five. So I'm okay with working from 5 p.m. until midnight if that's what I need to do to get my business off the ground, like and that's why I say, don't try to make money doing something you don't even enjoy doing for free, because what's gonna sustain you and what's gonna push you is your passion behind whatever you're doing.
0: So, you were able to earn $60,000 with the side hustle outside of your nine to five, putting in the hours that you had to put in. So, there is no get rich quick scheme, there's a get rich slow scheme, right? Yeah. You took hours. Like people that want to have more have to do more, right? That's it. If you wanna have more, you have to do more. And what you're telling us is, yeah. Get outside of the box that you've put yourself in and think outside of that. And so basically with this, you have your regular job and then your side hustle that you were able to do stuff that you were able to monetize something you enjoy doing. And that helps you get financially independent to that fire movement. That's financially independent, retire early group where you don't have to like, I think the thought of being financially independent is so foreign to us. And when I say foreign, like, I mean, like, you know, like alien, like, you know, out of this world, like it <laughs> right. just can't happen for me because like the whole idea of being financially independent, like I remember like the, one of the worst pieces of financial advice I got from a family member, I'm not going to put them on blast. <laughs> I want to, but I'm not, but he, the person told me, that like, you always will have a car payment. That's just kind of like what you're, you just, this is what they said. Like we just paid off one of our cars a few months ago during the quarantine. And I remember like that would always be in the back of my mind. So it's like, okay, it doesn't matter. And making those bad decisions financially, one of the bad worst decisions we make is buying a car we can't afford, you know, financing it for 84 months with a horrible interest rate and then taking your old car and then adding that to the loan and doing all, you know, just the stuff we do. Right. And so I just thought that was how we did it. That's just what we do. Like I'm going to have to always carry every time I buy a car, I'm going to have to take off the old, you know, take, you know, seven, $10,000 from the old car, put it onto the new car, automatically depreciate the car I bought immediately and then pay for that one until it doesn't work anymore. And because I got a 72 month loan, the car is not going to last that long. And then I have to go get (laughs) another one. Like, this is just the vicious cycle that we're in until, I mean, you kind of have that aha moment. Now, mind that I've worked in finance for 20 years. This is what I've done. Like I've done that. And I, I still was like, this is what was taught to me. So it's okay to have a car payment. So I'd rationalize it's okay to have a car payment. It doesn't matter as long as you can make the payment, you're always gonna have one. And so just talk to us a little bit about how you were able to get yourself financially stable with the extra income and what that looked like. Cause I think it it marries together very nicely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm definitely with you on this idea that we're sold. That debt is normal and it's okay and it's just part of your existence and you accept it and it is what it is. And I think a lot of us are doing that with student loan debt, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how many of us are getting into student loan debt to a number that doesn't even equate to like what you will make in the first five, 10 years of your career Mm -hmm. because that's just what you're supposed to do, right? You have this opportunity, you figure out how you're gonna pay for it later, and then you can't pay for it. So I definitely normalized the idea of being in debt. I was in student loan debt. I had $57,000 of student loan debt when I graduated from college. And I was like, well, it's going to take me 25 years to pay this. It is what it is. You know, I'll just pay the bare minimum and whatever. When I started side hustling and learning about financial independence, which happened to tie up pretty, you know, pretty much at the same time. I realized that any amount of debt that I have is going to slow down my progress to being financially independent. And so for the first time, I saw it not as something that I need to accept, but it's something that I need to get rid of ASAP because it's going to keep me in a job that I don't want to be in for longer than I have to be in. And so because of that side hustle, when I started paying off extra amounts of money towards my student loans, I was able to. Do $39,000 in 17 months. Hmm. I paid off $39,000 because I had started at that $39,000 mark when I made that switch in my brain. Without the side hustle, I'd be paying my student loans until I was at least 40, maybe 45. And yeah, it was just like a total game changer. I couldn't accept debt anymore. So I sold my $430,000 house in New Jersey too, because I saw that as you know what that's another thing that's a ball and chain on my leg that i don't even want anymore that doesn't represent who i'm trying to be in this new life and that's how i approach debt nowadays with anything you know i bought a four-year-old used car when I needed a new car i was always in this mentality before that i need a brand new car because that's the only car that's not going to fail me and i have to accept having a payment and that's just not it you know i think it More than anything, financial independence and early retirement is a mindset shift. There has to be that shift in your brain before you can start actually implementing anything that's going to get you to that place. And so your relationship with money, your relationship with debt, the things that you've been told that you need, the big house, the big car, the fancy clothes, all that stuff has a different vibe when you're realizing that each and every dollar that you put towards that stuff represents time that you won't get back that you work for.
0: And I try to stress to people that time is your most valuable asset because you do not get that back. You're just not going to get that back. And so I think like, so you were able to pay uh, to the tune of for 17 months, you were paying almost $2,300 a month to debt. And it took you 17 months to do that. And I think like when you have that type of focus, so we've paid off $25,000 of debt in the last six months. I think it's what, 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 what six months I think it is, and we plan on paying off another thirty five this year. I plan on getting like 35, dollars worth of debt paid off this year. And like I remember, like when we paid off our car, and like that was like a five hundred and you know it's almost six hundred dollar payment. We paid off the car, and I was like, "Shit, we don't have to pay that car payment anymore." Okay, so we don't have to pay that. Then we went and started attacking some credit cards. We paid the credit card off, and now I'm logging on to my credit card, and I'm like, "Man, we only have one left. We have one card left," and I'm like, "Well." What are we going to do now? Like, we just have all, you know, so <laughs> it's one of those things like it's so freeing, right? Because now we don't have to, like, it, there's nothing like getting paid and not having to or not having to wait till payday to do something. Right. Like, that's a crazy feeling. Like, I don't have, like, we don't structure our trips and everything around payday now because we've been able to take away a lot of the debts that we had that would take money away from us. And now we have that free money. Exactly. So I love that. And I think that the FIRE community, I think they do some great things and there has to be more people talking about it, getting out of debt. And it's so foreign. Like I'm telling you, I talk to clients about this all the time, even the way we pay our debts from debt stacking to snowballs or however you want to call it. And when we get into those conversations, I think it's so impactful for you to have someone to bounce those things off of those ideas. I had a call with a client the other day, I'll say this, and then we'll see if there's any other points that you wanted to make. But I was talking to a client the other day and this client was looking at using some funds from the sale of a home, which I think that's always you know, to get out of debt. So they were paying off some stuff from the sale of the home. Well, when we had went through the way that they were paying off their debts, it actually made sense for them not to pay off one of the debts with this money. And they're like, well, that's not, you know, it has the highest interest rate, blah, blah, blah but it had the lowest interest rate and they were thinking we should just pay it off. And I was like, no, nope, let's not pay that one off. Let's pay these ones off. And I showed them the difference in how to pay those off. And that was all just from a conversation because she happened to be a client. And it actually was the better thing for her to do. Her debt-free date was gonna be sooner by not paying off the debt that I told her to pay off. And I showed her that and she was like, oh wow, I didn't even think of it that way. I was like, well, you know, it just helps to have that conversation. And I guess my question to you would be, what are some of the things that you would try to say to people to help encourage them to have money conversations? And I'm not necessarily saying with just in general, what, what, how would you encourage someone to do that?
1: Yeah. Well, I think one of the things is definitely we have to get away from this stigma and taboo that there is just about talking about money in our communities in general, right? There's like so much stigma around even talking about money, because it's like, I don't know, I feel like in a way it might be influenced somewhat by religion in the Latino community, because, you know, the seven deadly sins, greed is one of them. And so like, you just don't talk about money, because it's ugly. And it's, it makes you seem like you're greedy. And that's, you don't care about people. And I don't think that we need to frame money as having this characteristic of bad or good. It's just a tool whatever happens with money, it's because of the person that's controlling it. It's not the money itself. So when it comes to just having money conversations, I started with my family. You know, I started talking about investing with my parents. My mom didn't have a 401k until she was almost 50. And so I started talking to her about it. I'm like, mom, what are you invested in? How much are you putting in? How much do you have? Because at some point you're going to be old. You're going to have money to retire. And so once you start opening those conversations, it really Builds this sense of like trust and community that you can also do with your friends, right? I think a big part of people's success and failure is also like, who are you actually around? If you're talking about money in a way that's not productive, like, hey, let's go out to the club and spend $500 and go out to eat every weekend, those people are not going to get you to where your money goals should be. You got to start like chopping people off the block, man. Like, if they're not getting you, in a headspace that's going to accelerate your goals, and they're actually going to stifle them and put things in your way that are going to stop you from accomplishing what you need to do, might need to cut off those people. And that's okay. You know, there's too much emphasis on showing your success in a way that's external versus knowing that you have the money and nobody else needs to worry about that, too. I think that's another thing that for me, As a first gen kid who went to school, who got a good job, I was really focused on like showing my success. So I'm buying the expensive clothes, the cars, getting the fancy apartment. And that didn't make me happier. It just made me broke. So I had to have that mindset shift too, to be like, you know what? My external look is not indicative of like my internal worth. And I think we need to normalize that conversation amongst ourselves too, because there's way too much emphasis on just showing your success from the outside.
0: I think you hit the nail on the head with that. Like we love to show our success outwardly, and don't worry about the inward success that we're having. And so, as I think about this, and I worked at the bank, and so I could see, you know, the way people looked when they came up, and as a teller, and and all throughout my career, even as the manager, I remember one thing I learned is that the people that have money, sometimes, most of the time almost every damn time. You couldn't tell, right. like you really couldn't tell how much, I mean, like they might've had a nice car, but their clothes were just regular clothes. They weren't wearing designer clothes. They didn't come out dipped in, you know, <laughs> Gucci and, and everything else. They weren't, you know, you couldn't tell you'd see them get out. They had some old boots on. You see, you know, lady, she's just dressed regular and the workout clothes or whatever. And you're like, wow, this person has, you know, and one of the banks I worked at, they had a, it was called a ZBA account. So you couldn't see the balance. But, no, the che- you know, that was a count that you didn't have to check. Like, the check's always cleared. Everything was good. And you see these people come in. And they didn't have the big, what's the bag that everybody The Louis
1: Vuitton. In.
0: They didn't have <laughs> the Louis Vuitton. They didn't have a Birkin bag. They didn't have any of that. You know yeah. what I mean? They had none of that. They, I didn't see them with, maybe they'd have, like, a nice Rolex watch if they were, like, whatever. But most of the time, they didn't have that. And most of the time, they weren't minorities. And all the minorities that came in that had, most of them had, that came in that had money. And I'm not saying all, but most of them that came in that had, you know, that didn't have money would have the flashy cars, would have different things. I'd look at the mortgage, like, cause I looked, did mortgages for a little while so I could see the debt. So I always equate cars and houses and stuff like that to debt. I don't equate that to success. I equate that because anybody can get a car. It doesn't matter, you know, what kind of credits are they going to give you a car? Cause they have something they can take back. They have collateral. So yeah all that's good stuff. I like this. As you know, this is the minority money podcast where we are changing the complexion of wealth. So Janice, what motivates, inspires you to continue to grow and lead? What does it?
1: I think it's definitely the feedback that I get from people in the podcast community. When I do live events, when I do workshops, when I do an episode that resonates with people and the feedback that I get that it's like, you know what? This is the first time I hear about somebody talking about money in a way that is relevant to me or thank you for teaching me that investing is also for Latinas and for people of color or thank you for making me think about like what I can do as a side hustle that's definitely resonates with me more than anything because it shows me that the need is there and people are hungry they're hungry for community they're hungry for inspiration and they're hungry for just feeling like they're not alone in this whole process. And I think that's what can feel really freaking scary sometimes. It's like, you wanna be this person who's building generational wealth, who's changing the legacy of your family. And the more that you find people that are also aligned with that, it definitely keeps you motivated. So for me, that's definitely it.
0: I love that. Nice. Do you think education plays a big part in wealth building?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't know anything about financial independence or early retirement or side hustling or entrepreneurship, if I didn't educate myself through podcasts and YouTube and literally social media, you know, finding people on Instagram, the thing that our generation has at its disposal is the internet. Like you can literally learn anything you want about anything. If you want to learn about investing, if you want to learn about how to buy real estate, how to start a business, like that is going to be totally accessible to you. And that's what plants the seed. So for me, I think education is the foundation of anybody who's trying to build wealth. You need to know that these systems exist because other people know that they exist. That family at Stanford with the four generations, they know it exists. They've been monetizing off of it for generations. So we need to know so that we can take advantage of these systems too.
0: Absolutely. I love that because you didn't mention education in the traditional sense. And I think that is the biggest gap where we miss out on traditional education. You can go out and get all those loans, but I promise you, if you spend you know an hour, two hours, three hours a day, instead of just looking at social media, like actually doing some research in your social media platform, you probably will find someone that's going to help you further yourself financially. Absolutely. If you could offer a piece of advice to our listeners, what would that piece of advice be?
1: Start a side hustle. COVID has shown us that you cannot rely on a single income source. So if you don't take anything away from 2020 other than, damn, I can't rely on my nine to five to pay my bills because it can be snatched out from under me at any moment. And I need to diversify my income streams. That's what you need to do. Start that side hustle.
0: That's it. You heard it from her. Like you start it, start (laughs) it, start it.
1: Start it, even if it's imperfect, even if it's a work in progress even if you're not a hundred percent sure, just start. That's the key to success at anything in life. Just start.
0: I love it. This is it. Nothing to add. I think that's great. I've really enjoyed this conversation. We'll definitely have to continue to stay in contact. I think we could do some more work together. I really, really like what you're doing. You have a great message, great energy. Thank you for coming on and sharing with the listeners. And yeah. Thank you. If people want to get more of you, what social medias are you active on? Where can they find you?
1: Yeah, so I'm everywhere from Twitter to TikTok and everywhere in between. So if you want to find out more, just head over to YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com. you find all the social links there.
0: Awesome. Thank you for your time today. We really enjoyed it. As everyone knows, this is the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Until next time. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there.